Okay, welcome to the Yecheskel Shit and uh, on this very wet Monday here in Ranana. Um, the shoe is again, as ever, dedicated to Ilunish Mosson, Ephraim Shmuban Aramaria Koin, Achai Tobabas Eliezer Mendel Hakoin on the Book of Yecheskel. It's also dedicated to all our soldiers um, who are uh, fighting for our security. Um, we bless them and may they be protected um, by God, uh, partially as a result of the shear and all the other learning and davening that goes on um, for their protection. Uh, we left last week at the start of chapter 16. We're already up to chapter 16. It's only been two years, but we're already here. Chapter 16 is a long chapter. It's got 63 verses in it. It's split up into nine sections. Um we had a little bit of an introduction last week to the first part of the chapter from the Barbanel. It's an allegory, a parable about a foundling that's uh, discovered in the field by a generous individual who takes the poor baby home, naked baby, just been born, takes the baby home, raises it, looks after it. And then the baby, when, when grown, starts to misbehave. And that's the allegory, the analogy, um, the parable to the relationship of God and the Jewish people, which we'll go through in the first 14 verses of the chapter. Um, and it all sounds very dark. But what I mentioned at the end of last year, uh, right to the end of this chapter, we have a message of comfort. Uh, and that always seems to be the way it's based on Sifrin Devorim. That the way of a novi, the way of a prophet, is to give the bad news first. You want the good news or the bad news. And the way of the prophet is always to give the, the bad news and then right at the end gives you the good news. And I just want to mention the good news because it's it's very important, uh, especially in the times we're in at the moment, um, that God at the end of dark prophecies always uh, brings us some measure of comfort in the sense that God will, in the future, reestablish, however bad it looks at a particular moment in history, God will, in the future, reestablish his relationship with the Jewish people, as it was at the very beginning of our marriage, so to speak, the chuppah that took place on Mount Sinai, which we memorialized last week in the parish of Yisrael on last Shabbat. And the message of comfort and new beginnings, which we'll see at the end of this chapter, is really something that uh, the Ramchal writes about and Rav Desler writes about. So I'm just going to give you a, a brief uh, introduction to that before we start the dark chapter to give some, some some type of heat before we go into the dark tunnel of the first 14 chapters of chapter 16. So the Ramchal in his works, various works, does uh, Tavunos, Derech Hashem, various other Kabbalistic works, uh, writes extensively on the relationship between God and the Jewish people and God's love for the Jewish people. And Ramchal describes why, after all the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people throughout their history, starting with the exodus from Egypt and everything that uh, we put God through in the desert, the golden calf, everything else that followed on from that, the spies, the arguments, um, everything that went on during the first 
uh, uh, temple period, the second temple period, and subsequent to that, after all is said and done, God is prepared to bring comfort and reproachment, rapprochement, reproachment in English. And uh, God will always be prepared to renew his vows. Again, something we it's very topical because of last week's parasha uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, which was a chuppah. Um, God is, will always be prepared to renew his vows with us, uh, even taking into account everything that we've done. And the Ramachal gives us an analogy, he says, which is very similar to what we're going to be discussing here. Imagine the case of a foundling, uh, a child, uh, which is, again, going to be the subject of the parable here in Yechezkel. Uh, a man finds a foundling, a baby in the street, and you take him home, you feed him, you clothe him, him or her. Um, you clothe them, you educate them, you shower them with love and gifts. And then when they're older, you take them into your business. Then after looking after all this person's needs all his life, you discover that he's stealing from your business. How do you feel? What would you do? After all, says Ramchal, the child is only alive today because of you. You clothed him, you fed him, you educated him. All his resources he got from you. And he is using everything you gave him to throw it back in your face and steal and cheat from you. And says Ramchal, that's the situation we find ourselves in vis-a-vis God. Because by sinning, you're using your intelligence, which is a gift from God. Uh, you are using your energy and life force, which is a gift from God. You're using the environment and its resources, which is a gift from God. A sinner can't exist without God propping him up moment by moment. Imagine the scenario. This man is sinning against God and God is propping him up with life every second that he's sinning. Is there any greater disgrace than that? Why would God do that? Why would God show support to some other being that's deliberately taking what he's giving of himself and throwing it back in his face? Why would God continue to prop you up so that you can continue to throw his gifts back at you? The answer is that the only reason why God would do this is because he's committed to each and every one of us out of love. God is desperate that we shouldn't fail, that we should always be given another chance, which is the essence of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Yisraeli Simei Teshuvah, and so much so that he's regularly prepared to overlook things that we do, which in logic he shouldn't really do. So what is, says the Ramchal, what is God's love? That although we do get punished, there's no question about that, God, just like a child, would be punished. But God is still prepared to overlook some of our actions. He's always prepared to forgive us. He gives us not only the opportunity on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur and the, the 10 days of repentance, but every day, three times a day. You can stand in front of God. You can ask for forgiveness. And uh, he's forever looking to reestablish his relationship, not only with the Jewish people as a whole, but each and every individual. So Rav Dessler says something here that's on not on this chapter, but it's very relevant to this chapter. And he says something very, very profound. He says there's a common misconception 
that uh, people, parents, in general, people are good. They are good to and invest in the people that they love. Again, he says that's a misconception that we we do good things for and we invest in the people that we love. Says Radessa, that's incorrect. The reality is that we love the people we are good to and those we invest in. Repeat that. He said the reality is we love the people that we are good to and those that we invest in. Love, says Rav Desla, comes through investment. So when something is going on with someone you have invested in, you're over there with them experiencing their joy and also experiencing their disappointment because you have invested so much in that other person that you project yourself on that person's situation. So that's the way love works, not the way you think. That The more you invest in someone, the more you love them, which is what we do with our children. We invest whatever we can in them. And the more we invest, the more we come to our relationship, the stronger our relationship and our love grows for them. Says Rav Desla, now we know how love works. When we go back to the idea of God's love, what are we saying? Look at the huge investment God has makes in the Jewish people and makes in all of us as individuals day by day, minute by minute. And then realize how much God really loves us. In human terms, if I invest heavily in someone, whether it be with time or money or with anything else, I have tied my success as a person to that, to that person. Could we say the same thing about God, that his success in some way could depend on us? What's our response to this love that God demonstrates for us every day by his constant investment in us? Again, Rav Tesla says, if God is investing in us, we have to invest in him. As Chazal say, from the Gemara, Ezeu Chosid, who is a person that does chesed? Hamis chesed im kona, someone who does chesed for God. Now, how is it possible to do chesed for God? How can you, you know, buy a, the birthday present for the man that's got everything? What, what does it mean? That you do chesed for God. How, how is it possible to do chesed for God? So the answer is this. This is the way the Ramchal understands it. Anyone who has a goal can receive chesed. Because if you have a goal and someone helps you to achieve your goal, he is doing chesed for you. God describes himself as having a goal. Uh, as the Ramchal says, the ultimate goal of all creation. This is in the Derech Hashem, right at the start. The ultimate goal um, and purpose of all creation was to create a creature called man who could be as godlike as a created creature could be. Being godlike means doing chesed. Being godlike means investing in another the way that God invests in another. Love with no strings attached. Anyone who moves that project forward, which is God's project, love and loving kindness is doing a chesed for God, is doing a kindness for God because they are moving God's project forward. My love for God can be increased by investing in God. How do I do that? By adding as much chesed as possible to others, 
to parallel the chesed, love and investment that God invests in us. And that is the way we become more godlike. So that's going to be the ultimate message of this chapter, to become more godlike. When we become more godlike and we invest in others, that will be the trigger or is the trigger for the way that God invests in us. So that's all to come at the end of the chapter. But uh, it's uh, a very interesting approach um, to the idea of love. Love is we don't invest in people we love. Um, we love the people that we invest in. The more we invest, the greater the love. So that's the idea of the Ramchal and uh, uh, Rav Desla. Uh, and we'll deal with that in greater detail at the end of the chapter. But now we have to begin the dark parable in verses 1 to 14, which is an allegory uh, of the immense investment that God has endowed the Jewish people with from the first day he met us, so to speak. So let's start chapter 16, um, verses 1 and 2. The word of God came to me saying, Ben Odom, Hoda Son of man, let Jerusalem know about its abominations. So Yecheskel, uh is here to remind the Jews of her history and her misdeeds by the use of a parable we have already described, the foundling child found in the mud, found in the dirt, in the field. And the use of the word Hoda here, uh, God says to Yechezkel, Hoda, inform, remind. Uh, it's unusual. Uh, and it's used here for two reasons. Normally God says, tell them or speak to them. Daber, Leymar, Lagid, Tagid. But Hoda is a very strange word. Um, it's unusual for God to use this word. And it's used here for two reasons. Number one, the word Hoda comes from the word, the root, as everyone should know, ladat, ladas, to know, and not just to know, but to know from experience. Ladas is to know from experience. There's a big difference between knowing uh, the president of uh, the, the president of the United States and knowing about the president of the United States. The former is very personal, that you know him, you know who he is, he's a friend of yours. Uh, knowing about the president of the United States means you've read something about him or you've heard something about it. Knowing uh, Ladas, Das, Hoda in this context is knowledge gained through actual experience, which is very personal. And the idea here is that God is going to remind the Jews via this parable of the crucial events in their history, something that they know about, something that they experienced, event, events that they're very familiar with because they've already experienced them. Why do this? Why would God do this? Why would God use this type of parable to remind them of their previous experiences with him? So the answer is in order that they can enter into a debate as to whether their behavior was appropriate. And if they can come to some consensus that the kindness that God has done for them for centuries has not been reciprocated by them in terms of their behavior, and their attitude to God. There's a type of bikuach going on here. Yechezkel is supposed to be presenting them with the facts, and that's supposed to elicit a response. And the response God is looking for is, you're right. 
you're right. We haven't reciprocated. We remember these events. We've experienced them. We know what they're all about. And we haven't reciprocated the way you've, you treated us. We haven't reciprocated. That's the language of Hoda. Ben Adam Hoda es Yerushalayim. Just a footnote before we go on to verse 3 here. This chapter of Yechezkel was originally set to be the Haftar of Parshish Shemos. I don't know if people know that. Um, it's a long chapter and it would be a long Haftarah, um, 63 verses. But the Gemara, uh, put the kibosh on it. Uh, the Gemara in Megillah on Daf Kafhe, um, make in Kafhe on the base on page 25b makes the following declaration. It says the section of Tanakh, Hoda es Yushalayim es Tovaseha, make known. Uh, to Jerusalem, her abominations, which was a command to Yecheskel, may be read and translated and used as a Haftorah. The Gemara says, isn't that obvious? And the Gemara says, no, it's not obvious because of the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. What does Rabbi Eliezer hold? Rabbi Eliezer holds that this chapter may not be read as a Haftorah because it speaks derogatively about the Jewish people. And uh, the Gemara brings a brice up uh, that there was an incident with a certain man who was reading the Haftorah in the presence of Rabbi Yezer, and he started to read this chapter of Tanakh, chapter 16 of Yechezkel, as part of the Haftorah, Hoda es Yushalayim es Tova make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and Rabbi Yezer said to him, before you examine the abominations of Jerusalem, go and examine your own abominations. Go and examine the abominations of your mother. The Gemara says that they examined this man's lineage and found that he was a Mamza. And the moral of the story is, we don't start off a Haftarah with the words, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And that's why it was expunged. And originally it was uh, promulgated as the Haftarah for Shemos, um, um, because it deals with the Jewish people. Uh, from their birth, uh, an allegory parable about the Jewish people from their birth, uh, which essentially takes in the story of Mount Sinai, uh, which is the essence of the book of Shemos. Um, but uh, Rabbi Eliezer made sure, even though Rabbi Eliezer is based Shammai, nevertheless, Rabbi Eliezer made sure that this chapter wouldn't be read as a Haftorah. So that's just a footnote to history. Uh, we don't we do not do that type of thing. We don't start a Haftorah with words like, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So what follows now from verse 3 is beautifully poetic in parts. Uh, it's got interludes of very, very beautiful Hebrew prose. And the whole thing is in stunning biblical Hebrew. So uh, here we go with verse 3. This is the the start of the allegory. But on Marita, God says, but on Marita, and you, Yechezkel, should say, So says God, Speak to Jerusalem. Your dwelling places and the origins of your birth. Your dwelling place, your origins, and your birthplace, your nationality are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Emirate, 
and your mother was a Hittite. Now, a very strange verse to start off with. Um, firstly, the first words of the verse, He should say to you, It's clear that Yechezkel, just to put the, 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 the logistics into perspective, uh, Yechezkel's not in Yerushalayim. Yechezkel's living in Babylon. And he's not commanded here to travel to Yerushalayim and give over this parable of rebuke in person. Um, he, despite the, the fact that the verse says, uh, you should tell them yourself. That's not what he's supposed to do. He's actually being told to express this prophecy in Babylon to the Babylonian Jews and then have them transmitted it either by word of mouth or by messengers to the Jews of Yerushalayim. So then we come on to the first part of this verse. God describes the the origins of the Jewish people. He says, your dwelling place, your origins, and your birthplace, your nationality are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Emirate and your mother was a Chitach. So the first thing to deal with here is the meaning of the strange word very, very strange word, unique word, Mechorosayich. Um, now, the word should actually be translated as your weapons. Mechorosayich are weapons. Uh, so Rashi explains the word Mechorosayich should be read Megurosayich, your dwelling place, your origins, interchanging the calf and the gimel. Um, and similarly, we have in Bereshis, at the end of Bereshis in chapter 49, when Yaakov describes the violent tendencies of two of his children, Shimon and Levi, we remember, uh, took it upon themselves to wipe out um, the whole town, the town of Shechem, um, uh, for raping, because uh, one of the, the son of the king raped his their sister, Dina. He describes them, Shimon the Levi Achim. Uh, Shimon and Levi are brothers. Klichomos. Weapons of violence, mechorosayim, or their nature, or their roots. So that's the idea, mechorosayim. It's an expression of weaponry, but it should be read, megoros, megorosayim, your origins. That uh, your origins are from Canaan. What about this idea that you, the origins of the Jewish people, their birthplace, are from the land of Canaan? And the fact that your father was an Emirate and your mother was a Chiti from the tribe of the Hittites. Is that really true? Um, was the ori- uh, originator, the father figure of Judaism, an Emirate? And uh, was his wife a Hittite? So there are two ways to understand the statement. You can understand it either literally or allegorically. So Rashi explains it literally. He says, Your origins and your birthplace or in the land of Canaan, he says the origins and birthplace of the Jewish people can be traced back to the time when God appeared to Avraham in the 15th chapter of Bereshis, when Avraham had already moved to live in the land of Canaan. And the, the event in question was the bris ben Habsorib, the covenant of the pieces, where God let him know that his descendants would inherit the land he was currently living in, which was Canaan, 
uh, as a permanent inheritance. This is chapter 15, verse 7 of Bereshis. The Vayomre Lov. And God said to Avram, Ani Hashem, I am God, who took you away from Urkastim in the Chaldeans in Babylonia, to give you this land of Canaan, Larishta, to conquer it in the future and inherit it. And could be that Rashi says that this is what God's saying here. You, the Jews, your origin, your birthplace can be traced back to the land of Canaan um, because that's where I made my deal with Abraham. I made my deal with Abraham in Canaan and he then became a Canaanite because I gave him the land of Canaan. So your father was was the first Canaanite. Um, But of course, in that agreement that God had with Avram, there was always a catch. There's a catch in, you know, a lot of God's promises come with a catch. Um, and there was a catch in the promise of giving the land of Canaan to the Jews. It wouldn't happen immediately. Um, uh, and therefore, God says here, your father was an Emirate, meaning your fathers would replace the Amorites. You're not, you're not going to get the land of God's telling Abraham, yes, you're the first, you're the first of your uh, descendants that's been given this land of Canaan. So the origins of the Jewish people trace back to the Canaan, Canaanites. But who's living there at the moment? The people living there at the moment are the Amorites, and they're not due to leave there yet. When God promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit Canaan, this was the deal first, as the verse continues to say in chapter 15 of Bereshus. God said to Avram, You should surely know that first your descendants will be strangers in a strange land that's not theirs, and uh, they will be enslaved there, and they will be oppressed there for 400 years. Only after 400 years would the land of Canaan become the inheritance of the Jews. So, true, the origins of the Jewish people trace back to the promise of the land of Canaan. But in the meantime, uh, Avram was living in a land that was Canaan, but it was owned by the Amorites. So, strictly speaking, Avram was an Emori, was an Amorite. And why was it that we would have to wait 400 years so the Pasuk says, After the fourth generation, you will return here. The Jewish people will return to this land of Canaan. For the sins of the Amorites will not be complete until then. In other words, they won't have uh, committed enough transgressions against God for four generations, at which point they will have done, and I will... Uh, uh, expel them from the land and give it to you, but the promise is from now. And so what Rashi says here, since the Amorites uh, had a God-given lease on the land for 400 years still to run, and God does not punish a nation until its measure, its basket of evil is full, the descendants of Avram would have to wait that period of time before replacing the Amorites as the rightful owners of Canaan. Hence, he says here, Ovicho Emori. 
Your father was an Amorite. Yeah, he lived in Canaan, but Canaan wasn't his yet. Your roots are in Canaan. That's where the Jewish people are supposed to be. But your father, Abraham, the progenitor of the Jewish people, he lived in the land of the Amorites. So that's why he says in this verse, Ovicho Amori, your father was an Amorite. What about your mother? And your mother was a Chittite. So Sarah, who was the wife of Avram, was the mother of Israel. Uh, we know that she died suddenly after the story of the Akeda. So when she died suddenly, Avram had to find somewhere to bury her. So he brought a pot of land, a plot of land from Ephron Hachiti, as an internal burial spot located in the Chittite city, the then Chittite city of Hebron. As the Torah says, this is Bereshit chapter 23. Avram took possession before the eyes of the people of Ches. Behold, boy, Sha'iro, in the presence of everyone who'd come to the gates of the city. Avram buried Sorah. Ishto, uh, his wife, El Ma'orestea in the cave in the field of Machpela, Alpanay Mamre, which was facing the town of Mamre, who uh, Hebron, which is Hebron, but Eretz Canaan in the land which would be Canaan. So Sora was the first to be buried in the former Chittite enclave of the Ma'orestea Machpela. It was a Chittite enclave, a Chittite area. Hence the Possek says, Be'imech Chittit. Your mother, the mother of Israel, Sarah, is buried. That's where she, she ended up. She ended up being buried in the land of the Hittites. So that's the way Rashi understands this. This is the literal, what God's saying is literal, that the, your origins, the origins of the Jewish people can be traced back to the promise God made that the land of Canaan would be theirs. But the, your father, your progenitor, Abraham, was actually an Amori. That was his nationality because they, they were in control of the land in his time. And your mother, Sora, is called the Chiti because she's buried in the land of the Chittites. That's the way Rashi understands it. So, and that's the uh, literal understanding of this, this verse. But uh, almost all the other Maparshan, Barbanel, the Malbim, others, explain this verse in the context of the forthcoming allegory. So the Malbim writes beautifully, beautiful Hebrew here, the prophet draws a picture here, Metzaya in Yonah, but Mitzrayim, Ki'ilu, Hushlecho, Hayolda, Hazos, Me'eretz, Nochria. So the prophet draws a picture as if the abandoned baby girl that we're going to talk about, that will be the focus of this parable, was thrown out of Egypt because... Because she was not a native of that land. She was an unwanted foreigner, an unwanted stranger. And her origins, her ancestry were from the land of Canaan. In other words, the Jewish people were eventually kicked out of Mitzrayim, kicked out of Egypt. And uh, all through the period that the Jewish people were in Egypt, they were treated as foreigners, treated as mongrels not native of that land. They were unwanted foreigners, unwanted strangers. And because their ancestry was from the land of Canaan, not from the land of Egypt. And even worse than that, she was the product of two different tribes, 
within that land. Her father was an Amorite and her mother was a Chittite. And because she was a mongrel child, the Jewish people were a mongrel child. Neither nation wanted her and neither did her parents. And as a result of that, she became abandoned. And the imagery is that the infant's father was an Amorite. And the Amorite men were more evil than the men of the other Canaanite tribes. And her mother is described, the mother of this child of the Jewish people is described as a Chittite. Shebenos Ches, Hoyu Roim Yosa Minishehu Amoraim Amoraim Bemidoseim. Because the women of the Chitti were more evil than the women of the Amorites in their impropriety, their immodesty, and their indecency. He says, So wasn't it inevitable, says the Balbim, that this abandoned baby girl, the Jews, a mongrel child, would eventually grow up and replicate the evil, pagan, violent ways of their father, the Amorites, and the perverted sexual practices of their mother, the Hittites. So that's the way the Malbim complete, and this is the way the Malbim completes his drosha. As God speaks to Yechezkel, the Jews have not yet separated themselves from the Tumah, from the uh, impurity of the Canaanite tribes, and their behaviors. So this is this is the the idea that uh, we were rejected, uh, we're enslaved in Egypt. They considered us to be a mongrel collection of uh, different tribes and uh, species that weren't uh, weren't uh, weren't worth dealing with, and uh, which is as we'll come see later on, they decided to kill us. Specifically, they decided to kill the firstborn males. So now the marshal, now the allegory begins in earnest. Says God in verse 4. And as for your birth, the birth of this baby, uh, meaning the birth of the Jewish people, on the day you were born, uh, uh, on the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. And you were, neither were you washed with water to be cleansed. Uh, to be cleansed. Nor were you salted. We'll see what that means in a second. Um, nor were you swaddled or wrapped at all. So again, Malbim explains this verse in its allegorical meaning. He says regarding the birth of the Jewish people, God describes how the Jewish nation was born. God says, So God says regarding your birth, God describes the stages, the steps that should be taken after the birth of a child. He says, 
the, the procedure that follows the birth, says the Malbim, has got, strictly speaking, four parts to it. Echad biyom huledet osoch lo korash uh, the first thing you're supposed to do is cut the umbilical cord. God says your umbilical cord was never cut. Um, um, and shekursim hatibur shad ato yonik mizonosov derech hatibur v'hoyi v'madrekas atzomach shionik mizona derech shusha ukishenolad. So stage one is to cut the umbilical cord because up till that point, the child has drawn all its nourishment via the umbilical cord from its mother. Once born, we cut the umbilical cord to allow the infant to draw nourishment independently by mouth, either from the mother or from a third party. God says, your umbilical cord was never cut. When I found you, you were you were still attached. You were still attached to your mother. You were still attached. We'll see. It means you were still attached to the ways of Egypt. Uh, While still connected to the mother by the umbilical cord, it's it is still dependent on the mother. So the Jewish people were in Egypt. But they hadn't been separated. They were a new. They were going to be a newborn baby, um, but uh, they still were were connected by um, connected umbilically, um, so to speak, in the allegory to their mother. Their mother being uh, the Egyptians who were enslaving them. And the parable says the Malbim. The allegory here is that when a nation is born. In order for it to become a unique, uh, special nation, it must be separated from the next nation that bore it, the nation that gestated it. Otherwise, it is still being nourished by its mother. So as long as the umbilical cord is not cut, it is tied and to the mother and is reliant on the mother. In this case, the Canaanites that they originated from and the Egyptians who they'd spent 400 years with and they will continue to become, be heavily influenced by these mothers, the Canaanites and the Egyptian culture until God cuts the umbilical cord. Now, this, this idea here, um, the Torah actually says, um, in relation to the exodus from Egypt, uh, in the same context, uh, this like God took us out of Egypt and by taking us out of Egypt, that was the act of God cutting the umbilical cord so that we wouldn't be reliant. We wouldn't be nourished by the perversion of the pagan lifestyle and the perverted lifestyle of the Egyptians that was became part of us after 400 years. And the Torah actually says so in Devorim, in chapter 4. Look, uh, this is chapter 4, uh, verse 34. Lokachas lo goi miker of goi. God came and took for himself a nation from the midst of another nation. Says the Ramchal, quoting Chazal, what does it mean, Goy, Mikerev Goy, that God took one nation from the inside another nation? So he says, like a fetus from the midst of a womb. And just like a fetus has no independence, and is totally reliant on the mother for nourishment, so too the nation of Israel had no independence 
and was totally reliant on foreign source of nourishment. That didn't mean, says the Ramchal, that the Israelites didn't have their own intrinsic, unique character or characteristics. Just because a mother is a female does not mean that the child she carries has to be female as well. The Israelites had their own intrinsic character. Just that up to that point where God, so to speak, cuts the umbilical cord and takes them away, up to that period of redemption, they had no independent ability to exist without the nourishment provided by a foreign source, a foreign way of life, a pagan way of life that was part and parcel embedded in the Egyptian culture. So when God found the Israelites, their umbilical cord that connected them to this pagan lifestyle had to be cut in order that they could become independent and achieve their independence and achieve their potential. So the Exodus would not just give the Israelites an end to slavery, but also provide the Israelites with an independent standing, able to survive without total reliance on an all-encompassing pagan mother provider. So that's the first stage. The first stage with when a baby is born is to cut the umbilical cord. So God says that when I found you, when I found you in Egypt, the umbilical cord hadn't been cut yet. I had to do that for you. The second thing, says the Malvin, that has to be done for a child when it's born, God says, when I found you, um, you weren't even washed. You know, when a baby's born, so they washed. I think, I think that's what they do. Uh, I've seen a couple of births. Uh, they take the baby away and they clean the baby up and they wash the baby and check the baby over. As the Malvin says, Achakach, uh, after cutting the umbilical cord, the baby is washed to remove the blood and the gore from the baby. And the parable allegory here uh, is that regarding the Israelites, that they had to learn, the Israelites had to learn that the wise heart must, must wash away their corrupt and pagan beliefs that they've been exposed to for uh, hundreds of years with the water of wisdom and knowledge that God would provide them with. But yet they hadn't been washed with it. They hadn't been washed with godly divine wisdom. They would be when the Torah was given to them, but God found them still in the gore, found them on the floor, still covered in the blood and the gore of Egypt. Um, the first thing that they had to learn, so to speak, when they were cleaned, um, is to, to be able to establish men, establish themselves before they received the Torah. Uh, and contrary to the ways of Egypt, they had to clean themselves. So, so the Malvin, what does that mean? They had to establish themselves as people of good character and conduct themselves honestly when dealing with each other, something they'd never experienced in the context of the uh, uh, Egyptian experience. And he says, three, and God says, I found you in the, when I found you, the umbilical cord wasn't cut and you hadn't been cleaned. You didn't even know how to deal with each other. You weren't people of good character. You weren't honest. You didn't deal with each other nicely. 
I had to teach you all that as well. He says the third thing you do with the child, which is very controversial. Um, maybe some of our doctors, we've got some doctors here. Maybe can, they can address this issue. Hold on. There's a point being made here. In the chat, if Ezekiel is in Babylon, how is he to reprove the user by post office? Not by post office. They used to send messengers. There was regular messengers going through to Babylon all the time, from to Israel, from Babylon to and fro, to and fro all the time. <clears throat> Back to the text. The third thing, uh, uh, oh, I want to look to see how many doctors we've got here. We've got Dr. May. We've got Dr. Lowenthal. Um, don't know who else we've got. Like, those are the only two doctors. Okay, so maybe they can give me advice here. I've done some research on this. But the Malbim says, Achakat, the third stage, after cutting the umbilical cord, which God says, I found you in Egypt with your umbilical cord still attached to the Egyptians. I found you dirty. You hadn't even been cleaned. You, you, you lying blood, lying there in the blood and gore of Egypt. And the third stage is Achakat, Molchim Osa Lachazikabosa, says the Malbim. And this goes back many years. Um, uh, into antiquity, the idea that uh, after washing the baby, the baby's body needs to be salted. You rub salt into the baby's skin, and the Malam says this is to strengthen the skin. And of course, the parable and the allegory here is that the Israelites had to be hardened. The idea of, of uh, rubbing salt into the skin of a baby is that the skin becomes a little bit more hardened. And the Jewish people had to have to, have to be hardened to resist the outside influence of pagan and corrupt ideologies, and also to be hardened to the fact that they're traveling, going to be traveling as a nation uh, to a new land. So this idea, I just want to, you know, just uh, hold back a second. I did some thought and some um, um, research here um, about this idea of salting a baby. I'd never heard of salting a baby Thought it, uh, after it was born, that you cut the umbilical cord and then you wash it. That I knew about. But the idea of rubbing salt into a baby's skin, I'd never heard of before. So I did some research. And it turns out that it was thought for a long time that salting a newborn baby served as an antibacterial agent that also strengthened the skin and prevented infection. It decreased his sweating in the future. prevented bad body odor and decreased the chances of the development of allergies. Um, That practice was promoted by Galen, right? Which is a bit bit, bit of a while ago, Galen, going back a while. He was a Roman physician um, and others as well that followed him also believed in the practice. But I have to tell you, uh, having read the current research, Current research, however, is not positive to the practice. Uh, I, I foolishly, I'm, you know, I'll start reading something, and I'm, two hours later, I re- realize I've read a 200-page article that I've got no no real interest in. But I went and I read the 24th International Congress of Pediatrics paper that was issued after the Congress, um, and they addressed some of the issues here. And they wrote that some harmful, harmful traditional practices related to a new newborn care are still performed in many countries. Among these practices is salting a baby. Several methods of salting are used, either alone or in combination with other methods. 
small amounts of salt is dissolved in water uh, and put into the baby's bath, rubbing the skin with a mixture of olive oil and salt, for rub- rubbing the skin um, especially. Uh, the axillae, the groin, and the inside of the mouth with salt. And the 24th International Congress on Pediatrics writes, this practice still performed in many places, including the Middle East, Turkey, India, China, and many other countries. Unfortunately, this practice can lead to hypernatremia. Well, (laughs) I'm going to be a doctor in a minute. It can lead to hypernatremia, where the level of sodium in the baby's blood is too high and can be fatal. It can also cause hyperbilirubinemia. I hope I pronounced that right. Hyperbilirubinemia, which is a condition in which there's too much bilirubin. I don't know who Billy, Billy, I had a friend in Manchester called Billy Rubin. That's two words, Billy Rubin. Um, but anyway. It can lead to a condition where there's too much bilirubin in the baby's blood. Uh, and so their recommendations are a wide, effective public education campaign to stop salting babies should be executed using the public media, newspapers, posters and schools. Salting practices um, uh, present dangers and complications um, and should be part of postnatal education in every hospital. Uh, to explain to the mother that this practice should not be continued and explain to the mother before he she is discharged. So I don't know if... Uh, uh, right. Rabbi, do you ever hear of, uh, think, bath, bath, B-A-T-H, salts, S-A-L-T? Yeah, yeah, you, I used to have purchase, them. In, I, you could purchase them. Yeah, I used to have them in my bath when I was a kiddie. The, oh, I see. Okay, maybe I don't know. Larry, is, is this something that you experienced or never, never heard of it? But I would tend to agree that it's not a good practice. Certainly okay. not. To, you're not supposed to get it in your eyes. Ah, okay. Sure. All right. Okay. Now we know. Okay. So, um, so that is the third stage, anyway. Uh, and listen, just listen, back... there's some rabbi. There's some truth to the salt business because there are many remedies that depend on salt. And it does have medicinal um, effects. So there's something to it. So don't, let's not knock it. No, I'm not dismissing it, but I don't think it's common practice now. Anyway, back to the Malbin. Just, uh, let me just. Harry, I'm just using uh, the, the Hesco, I'm using a Cincino, and they talk about in 1918, there was a paper <clears throat> about women uh, in this area that used to wrap the babies in salt and oil for seven days. They wouldn't remove the, they swaddled them and then they wouldn't remove the diapers. Then they take it off, clean them up and rewrap them up to 40 days. They do it several times. So it was a, obviously a practice being done. Yeah. Yeah. Right up until the 20th century. Yeah. Okay. Oh. We'll just take it as it, uh, as it is. Now the Malvin mentions it, but the Malvin mentions the fourth issue. What do you do after you've salted the baby? Everyone knows about this my favorite thing uh he says uh the het the that uh when i god said i find you he won't even swaddled or wrapped at all the hoslim also liyasha hevorim i don't know if this is correct but that's what the malbim says finally he says the fourth stage is the baby is swaddled to straighten out the baby's limbs Swaddled very tightly to straighten out the baby's limbs. 
Fuji, because in the mother's stomach the baby's flesh was very spongy. The baby's flesh is spongy and the organs and limbs were tightly twisted with his head beneath uh, between his knees. And uh, so the baby's got to be swaddled and stretched out and swaddled tightly. And uh, God says that he didn't even have that either. And the parable, the allegory here is that the Israelites, worn down by years of slavery, needed to have their individual and collective personalities strengthened, straightened, so that they could be strong enough to act with bravery and courage in the trying years ahead. The swaddling of the Jewish people, which would eventually take place, would allow them to become straight, which is what you do with the baby. That's the allegory, that the limbs should be straight and upright. The idea of the God swaddling the Jewish people is exactly the same, that they should become straight, righteous, upright nation, capable of appointing honest judges, and officers, Shoftim Shotrin, Titan Lchob, Chol Sharecha, Adshi Yehei Kaguf, Nitzov Hakoma, Omits, Vachozok, Vavorov, Mushorim, Vachol Zer Naseloch. And he says, this, this swaddling of the Jewish people that hadn't taken place, that God would have to do himself, would allow them to become an upright and straight body, a nation of stature, a nation of bravery, a nation of strong limbs and strong morality. And when God found you, when God found this baby, it was still connected by the umbilical cord. It was still covered in blood and gore. It was still unsalted, so to speak, and it was still unswaddled. None of these four stages vital to the primary development of a newborn child had yet been achieved. And um, so he says, so that's that's how he found us. That's verse, that's verse um, four. That's how God found us. That's God found us in Egypt. And that was our status. Nothing had been done um, in, in terms of you know, the allegory of what you do with a newborn child. And God had to do that for us, had to uh, cut our umbilical cord to Egypt. He had to clean us of all our inappropriate uh, customs that we'd inherited from the Egyptians. He had to salt us to make us strong for what lay ahead for us and strengthen us, salted us. And he had to swaddle us to make sure that we came out upright and righteous and moral uh, and everything else. That's what God's got to do for us. Now, just finish off today's Shia before we move on to verse 5 next week and continue the allegory. Uh, there's a halacha we learn. We learn many halachas of Shabbos from this verse. So the Gemara in Shabbos on Daf Kuf, um, Kuf Kaptes on our page 129, the Gemara says as follows. Omar uh, Rab Nachman, Omar Rabba Baravu, Omar Rav. Everything said in this verse here, the parasha's tochacha in the um, the parasha, the, the section of God's rebuke of the Jewish people in the 16th chapter of Cheskel, 
one may perform for a woman who is in childbirth on Shabbos, since the chapter in Yechezkel speaks of the dangerous birth of, abandoned, of an abandoned child. Therefore, for all other children, these issues should be addressed. And the Gemara explains as follows. The day of your birth, says, says God. So the Gemara says from here, it's derived that one delivers a newborn baby on Shabbos and may violate all the rules of Shabbos, all the laws of Shabbos in doing so. Below Korah Shorech, and your umbilical cord, says God in this verse, was not cut. Says the Gemara, from here we know that you can cut the umbilical cord on Shabbos, uh, uh, which is essentially a, a malocha. And God said, I found you who hadn't been washed. So the Gemara says, from here we know that one washes the newborn child on Shabbos, and one may violate Shabbos any way one wishes in order to do, to wash the child. Uh, and you were not salted, says the Gemara from here, we know that, uh, what you're allowed to salt a newborn child on Shabbos. Um, nor were you swaddled, says the Gemara from here, we know that you can swaddle a newborn child in Shabbos, and if you don't have a, something to swaddle him with, you can be, you can be Bechal of Shabbos to get one. And the Rambam in Hilfah Shabbos, in the Mishnah Torah, in Hilfah Shabbos, goes even further than the Rambam, goes even further than the Gemara, and Paskin's La Halacha, so everyone should know this, when a woman is, he writes, this is just a precy of what he writes, but it gives you an insight to the halachas we learn from this verse. When a woman in the, is in the process of childbirth, goes into labor, uh, her life is considered in danger and sh- all Shabbos laws may be violated on her behalf. A midwife may be called from a distant place. This leniency applies even in the early stages of labor and even when the midwife lives, midwife lives beyond the Shabbos limits so that she can be available to cut the umbilical cord and tie it back when the birth takes place. If the mother requires a light when she cries out because of the labor, labor pains, a candle may be lit for her. If the mother needs oil uh, to be rubbed on her, a massage, an oil massage for comfort, it may be brought for her, the massage, masseuse may be brought for her. Moreover, says the Rambam, from the time a woman is in childbirth and she has any flow of blood, the Shabbos laws may be violated on her behalf. And all her needs should be met. What does the Rambam mean by all her needs should be met? So the Shulchan Aruch Harav and the Mishnah Brewer say that the woman's word that she needs something is accepted as halacha. Whatever she said she needs, she gets even against the opinions of any doctor that might be there. If the woman says, you know, I need a, I desperately need, a, you know, a, a scrambled eggs and toast. So you go and make a scrambled eggs and toast, even if the doctor says, no, she doesn't need it. If she wants it, she gets it. All her needs should be met, um, even against the opinions of the doctors. And the Shabbos law should be violated on behalf, on the basis of her say-so. And that's the psakalocha, that is the law relating to a woman who's in childbirth, even at the beginning of childbirth. So what we're up to now, we're up to verse 5, which again, 
we'll move on with the parable. God's found the Jewish people in Egypt, blooded, uh, umbilically connected to the Egyptians, dirted, blooded, and full, covered in gore, covered in gore by the life they've led in Egypt for 400 years. They need to be strengthened and they need, they need to be cleaned of all their, uh, the lifestyle, uh, that they, that they, uh, had in the Egyptian experience and they need to be strengthened and made ready for the future. So in verse five, God continues his perception of the Jewish people that he found in Egypt, um, before the redemption. And that's where we'll pick up, pick up from next week. And um, I hope everyone enjoyed the Shia. And till next week, I wish you a Shavuot Tov. Could I say a word? Sure. I just wanted to say about this word swaddled, if that is a good translation. Um, Swaddling, at least as a mother, swaddling was enclosing the child in warmth and comfort. That's that's how I always looked at swaddling. And, and um, might be part of it also. I don't know. I'm not a mother, and my idea <laughs> of swaddling was to tie the baby very tight in its blanket and yeah, hold it I'm... very and hold it very close to me to give it comfort. Right. But there, there so, was also an interesting study done a number of years ago. They found that babies that were swaddled, particularly if it was done hard, they had a higher incidence of SIDS of sudden really? death. Yeah. So pediatricians don't generally recommend swaddling except to put like a warm blanket or something around, again, for comfort, but not for straightening limbs or anything. It's not going to really do that. Wow. Okay. Well, we've got experienced mothers and we've got inexperienced fathers and we've got uh, <laughs> knowledgeable doctors. I'm sure we'll sort it out. And as I said, thank you everyone for taking part. Um, I'll see you again. The the analogy, the allegory gets, the Hebrew gets so um, poetic and the prose is so beautiful. Um, I look forward to continuing this next week, please, God. Um, Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. And culture to everybody. Everybody have a great week. And I'll see you same Thank time, you same much. place. Culture. Hurry. Yeah. Hurry. See you later. Sorry. Salting a newborn baby was quite a lot on it on, on Google. Yeah, no, I know. I've read, I've read almost everything because I'm stupid that way. All <laughs> right. Okay. Colton, have a great Thank week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.